Hello, and welcome once again to episode 36 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri, and I'll be your host once again for this episode, and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey, guys. So before we get into our main topic, it's time for our Indie App Spotlight. First up is Event Zones by Bharat Kumar, an iPhone and iPad app that makes it really easy to set countdown timers and reminders for events that happen in different time zones. You can set up countdowns for vacation, anniversaries, concerts, or product releases, and Event Zones will translate that event's time zone and alert you when the countdown runs out. Event Zones is completely free to use, so please support Barat by giving it a go and trying out their other apps. Finally, we have Orbit by Malin Sundberg, an iOS and Mac universal app for tracking time and preparing invoices. Orbit makes it really easy to keep track of how you spend your time, automatically catches when you've been idle, and will even show your running clock in a widget on your home screen or in the status bar of your Mac. When you are done tracking your time, Orbit makes it easy to get an overview of your time spent and create invoices to send to your clients. Orbit costs $7.99 per month or $79.99 per year for each member on your team. So if you do any sort of client work, please check it out to support Malin. Are you an indie developer? We want to hear from you. Please reach out to us on Twitter at CodeCompletion via DM so we can spotlight your app as well. So our main topic for today is all about computational complexity and overly clever code. Uh, so you've probably heard of this term before. So uh, we figured it would be a good, um, this could be a good introduction for you uh, to get to know it better. So Spencer, uh, like myself, you did not really go and take a computer science uh, based curriculum in your college years. And therefore, you probably know as little as I do about computational complexity, or at least you didn't really pursue that as a educational career. Um, in terms of like that, I feel like this is the most sciencey part of computer science is like analyzing these sorts of things. Um, so if you were to kind of describe what computational complexity is to someone like us who never really encountered it, uh, what would you, what, how would you describe it? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'll try my best here. I'd probably say it's something like a way to calculate the amount of time that something will, uh, occur. So as an example, we have like, um, it, it, like you call it big O notation, right? And mm -hmm. so with that, you've got a bunch of different uh, kind of notations. Uh, I, I don't know what you would call each different kind of thing. But base, you can kind of base, you know, if I've got a loop of uh, 100 things, and I need to loop through it, that would be O of N, or in other words, you would, it's, it's sort of just like a straight, it would, you know, if it takes one millisecond to run one iteration of the loop, it would take 100 milliseconds for the entire array. And then from there, you've got uh, other um, notations that will sort of, depending on what you're doing, kind of let you break down the complexity and see how long, uh, relatively speaking, uh, whatever you're trying to do will take. Yeah, so it base complexity off of that. Mm -hmm. it, it really is a counting game of seeing how long one given thing like takes uh, and uh, analyzing if that's going to become a problem if you do that one thing multiple times. Uh, so uh, you brought up the big O notation and the big O notation is some mathematical voodoo 
uh, if if you're not if you're not like super into math, don't worry about it. Uh, it's it's not it's not super useful to actually understand what what is going on there. Um, but we'll we'll try our best to try to describe it in terms that do make sense. Uh, but I I think you hit the the crux of the issue. If you have a loop uh, and you're doing the same thing over and over again, uh, anyone can understand that if that thing takes a certain amount of time and you do it over and over and over again, then it's going to take a longer and longer amount of time. Um, and it really depends on how many times you're going to be doing something. Uh, so if we were to really simplify like what this is about, it's all about one work item, like what your computer is doing and how long that takes. Thankfully, nowadays, computers are really, really fast. If you want to <laughs> add two numbers, that happens in literally a, under a billionth of a second. Like very, very quickly, your computer will be able to add two numbers. So if you have a loop where you're adding numbers over and over and over again, even if it takes like a thousand iterations of adding two numbers, you are never going to notice that amount of time pass. Um, right. So from the simplest like subunit of doing something, computers are very quick. And unless you're doing that a billion times, it's not going to take longer than a second. Um, by like virtue of that one work item taking one billionth of a second. Uh, so uh, generally speaking, you're not just adding numbers in a loop. That's not what we do when we make apps uh, for the most part. Uh, we try to do more interesting things like looping through uh, books in a catalog or um, I don't, I'm running out of examples, to-dos in a to-do list um, or there tweets in a timeline. Uh, mm -hmm. So we have model objects that we're kind of working on and we want that model object to do something. So if you were to, uh, if you were to simplify that problem down, you have one work item, whatever your model, ob whatever you want your model object to do. Uh, and however long that takes, that would be considered O1. So, uh, the big O notation, like this is your introduction to it, whatever that work item is, O1 is how long it takes for that work item to go from start to finish. Right. Now, if you do it five times, you're going to have O5. So if you if you tell your tweet to send and it takes however long it takes to send and you do that five times in a row, I don't know why you do that with tweets, but um, uh, let's make think a of it better. Yeah, you, you want to make a thread. So you have five tweets in a row. Right. Uh, they're all pre prepped. Everything is good to go, but it takes a certain amount of time for it to kind of register and be sent out. Um, and it always takes the same amount of time. Let's let's simplify uh, how this works. Um, that would take 01. So if you do it five times in a row, that would take 05. If you do it 10 times in a row, that would be 010. If you do it N times in a row, that would be ON. So that's where that ON notation comes from. It just depends on how many times you're doing that one thing. So say you have a function called tweet thread, and that function will send out... Um, n amount of tweets if you go ahead and do that you know how complex that that problem is it's always going to take n times whatever sending a tweet is to actually send all those tweets out um, and for the most part that's probably not a problem however if you have a bunch of threads that you need to send out all of a sudden you need to wait not only for that first thread to send everything but for the next thread and the thread after that and so on and so forth and if you don't know how big these threads are, if they're different every time or they can be as big as the user wants, 
then you're going to start to run into a problem because now instead of having on, you're going to have on times n basically for the amount of threads. So n for the amount of tweets in one thread and then m for the amount of threads. So very quickly, this gets more and more complex and you can, you can already see in your head how it's going to take longer and longer and longer to send out that final thread that's at the end of the list because it really depends on how many tweets there are and so on and so forth. So uh, that's where this O notation comes from. It's trying to find uh, in general, in as general terms as possible, how complex the code that you're trying to write is um, and simplify that down. Right. Um... Yeah, and just like Dimitri said, you can, you can kind of see, you know, even if you have uh, five tweets and you have five threads, well, that's five times five, you're, you mm -hmm. know, very quickly exponentially grabbing or uh, going, you know, higher and higher with the amount of time you're going to take. And so, like Dimitri said, maybe you have some lunatic that's going to make a thousand tweet thread, right? then you're like, oh, crap, okay, this could get really out of hand. And so one thing that we'll try to do is uh, keep things as sort of flat as possible. So, for example, maybe you have, uh, you know, this this example is like for uh, thread in threads. And then in that for loop, you have for tweet and tweets, and you send that tweet, right? Well, is there a way that you could do that differently? Well, maybe not in that case, but... As an example, maybe after you send the tweet, then you have another for loop that says like for tweet and tweet, tweet dot, uh, you know, has been sent or something. And you do another for loop in that. Well, is there a way that you could combine that work to say, well, instead of saying for tweet and tweet, send the tweet and then for tweet and tweet, um, mark it as, as uh, sent, could you just send the tweet and mark it as sent in the same loop and therefore you are reducing that computational complexity. That's kind of the mm -hmm. name of the game here is to make it as simple as possible uh, where possible. And I think that's something that um, may seem, I guess, like, Obviously. yeah, duh, of course you want to do that. But uh, just in, in from my own experience and having looked over, we um, at Lambda School, we had sort of this interview at the end of the or close to the end of their course where they had to do some more computer science -y, uh technical uh question or um whiteboarding i guess questions um that had to deal a lot with uh, time and space complexity like we're kind of talking about here and often not often times i should say but on occasion i did see four loops kind of side by side that really could have been combined into one and i get that it's a stressful environment and so i'm not you know, faulting anyone for that. But it's something that if you're just kind of blazing through trying to write some code quickly and you're not really thinking about this, that's okay. Uh, at the very least, I would maybe go back through your code. And now that we're kind of talking about this, it would be easy for you to see like and evaluate, you know, am I doing something like that where I'm making this overly complex and potentially making it run a lot longer than it needs to? Mm-hmm. And it, this is a tricky sort of problem because you probably won't notice it in testing because you're testing with whatever data set that you're testing. Uh, but every additional item that you're adding to whatever you're doing uh, has the opportunity of really running uh, things slower and slower and slower. And every item that you add 
the next one is going to be even slower than the previous one. So uh, that's where it really comes to um, to bite you. Um, and as Spencer said, you want it to be as flat as possible. And that basically means you want it to be as constant uh, as possible. So if we were to go through the tiers, uh, you have constant time complexity, which means you're doing one thing and it always takes the same amount of time. It's constant. Um, if you have a linear time complexity, it means that the amount of time will increase linearly with the amount of things that you're doing. Um, and that's the ON situation, where you basically have a loop of constant things. Um, if you have a loop of another loop, uh, then you end up in the very like iffy situation of being in quadratic time. Basically, you're doing every single thing that you add to what you need to do. Not only are you doing it are, do you need to do the whole loop again? Um, you need to do the loop of the loop again, uh, and that's where things get hairy quickly. Remember, if, as Spencer said, if you have five tweets and five threads, that's 25. Uh, if you have six tweets and six threads, all of a sudden that's no longer 26, that's going to be 36. And that right. number gets larger and larger and larger very quickly. Um, and it becomes very feasible to run out of time to basically do it. If you've ever... Uh, sculpted an algorithm for yourself and it just seems that it's going to take forever uh like you just added one zero and then all of a sudden it's not really (laughs) completing in any reasonable amount of time and you wait and you wait and you wait and then like four hours later it finally finished adding another zero is not just going to add another four hours it might add an entire lifetime to that problem and that's where where um it gets very hard to kind of deal with uh like writing programs is that's it's actually hard to find a way around that situation sometimes right um like a perfect example that i ran into one time was i I can't remember if i talked about this when i was teaching or if it was on the podcast but uh, i wrote uh just a, a kind of a fun app to take an image and sort it by uh its colors so it would you know rearrange everything but it kind of made this nice gradient uh, and you could specify essentially what the output resolution wanted to be, and it would kind of chunk that into, you know, if it, you wanted it to be 100 by 200 or whatever, it would kind of take it in chunks and it would be very quick. But as soon as you start getting into, well, I want this to be the same resolution as the image and it's, you know, multiple megapixels, then you're dealing with like 3000 by 4000 and that you know just like we talked about five by five is 25 and six by six is 36 that's not a huge jump but as soon as you start adding that zero and making it from hundreds to thousands uh it it would just sit there and churn for five ten minutes while it was sorting things and you know it's it wasn't it's not a very efficient thing and that's fine but that's just one example that i have run into where it makes a huge difference uh, as far as it was looping through, you know, the X pixel and the Y pixel. So I had that O of N squared or O of N, yeah, O of N squared, um, that quadratic time and it, it churned for a while. So definitely possible to do that in sort of a real world ish situation. Not really sure how often you'd be sorting images, but you can get up into arrays of the thousands and, and potentially be dealing with issues like this. Mm-hmm. And I think the easiest like problems of this come from misuse of APIs. For instance, if you want to see if an array contains something, you need to go through that entire array to see mm-hmm. if it's in there. So if you only have 10 items in your little database uh, that you're saving to a file, 
it might be fine to search 10 times uh, through that. If you have 100 items, then it's going to take 10 times longer to search through that data set than the first one. If you have 1,000 items, then it's going to take 100 times longer than the first data set to go through that. So as your user is enthusiastically using your app, for instance, uh, they are going to be adding more and more items to uh, your app so that way your app can collect and show it. Um, And if you try to search, you don't want the experience to get slower and slower the more your user is using your app. Um, But that's exactly what will happen if you naively just use array.contains, for instance, uh, to see if uh, that search term is in your array. Um, and that's where different data structures really come to save you. Um, one of them is a dictionary, for instance. So in a dictionary, if you want to find out if the dictionary contains something, uh, it is much faster than an array at doing that. Um, and th- there's a specific term for this. It's called logarithmic time. Uh, because although a dictionary can get bigger and bigger, it's not going to... Uh, make it slower and slower by the same amount every time you add a hundred new things, a thousand new things. You really have to add an exponentially larger amount of things to the dictionary for it to get linearly slower, and that's what a logarithm is. It's basically the inverse of an exponent. Um, so logarithmic time. Anytime you hear that term, that's that's excellent. Basically, that is the best uh, scenario that you can be in because it's basically constant for all intents and purposes um it will get slower as you add things but it's not going to get linearly slower it's just going to get a tiny bit slower for every 10 100 1000 10000 100000 things that you add to it you get like one notch slower every single right. jump uh you make so um dictionaries are great for that sets are also great for that if you want us to know if a set contains something it will be able to tell you instantly if that set contains something because it organizes its contents in a very different way um that said dictionary sets arrays they all have their benefits and their weak points um and it's important to really see like what data structure is going to work best for what you want to do and to pay very close attention what methods you're using on that data structure um, to see like if that's going to impact you severely or not. Um, and one thing that's pretty good about the Swift documentation is it will go ahead and tell you for these basic data structures what the complexity is for certain operations. Um, and now that you know what that O notation really refers to, the closer you are to constant or logarithmic time, so O log N, O1, um, the better you are. If you happen to have a log uh, ON or an ON log N, those are also fine as long as you don't use them within loops. Um, so there's all sorts of things to consider. I've got nothing else. <laughs> Sorry. Totally fine. So um, basically what this comes down to is be very careful what methods you are calling within loops. Don't yourself put loops within loops try to keep everything as linear as possible um and anytime that you do have a method that is going to have to go and loop through everything be sure to document that so that way anyone calling that method basically you in the future uh remember not to call that method within a loop uh if you don't want to shoot yourself in the in the foot there um that said there's not Time is not the only complexity that you can analyze uh, with regard to um, all this. You can also have something called space complexity. Um, And this comes down to how much space on your hard disk or how much memory you're using 
to perform a certain operation. So it's possible to make things linear in time complexity, but by being linear in time complexity, all of a sudden they're complex in space complexity. Um, and this really comes down to when you're like writing sorting algorithms and really nitty gritty, uh, like re-implementations of stuff that are, that is well solved. Um, but uh, for instance, if you have an array and you want to sort it, you can either use that same array to sort everything, or you can make a copy of that array uh, and do the sorting in that copy. If your array only has 10 things, then your copy is only going to be 10 things large. But if your array has 10 billion things, 10 gigabytes of data, for instance, not mm -hmm. a not an inconceivable number nowadays, then to sort that, if, you're, if your algorithm needs to make a copy, it needs to now make a copy that's 10 billion uh, entries large and... Lo and behold, just that action takes a long time. It's not really easy to make that amount of memory just instantly available, um, yeah. even on modern systems, because oftentimes it's like sharing uh, the entire space, all your terabytes uh, with everything. So you can get smaller chunks very easily, but that big giant chunk has to start moving stuff around and making that available. Uh, and that can really get to you as well if you're not careful. So if you can make sure that whatever operation you are doing can be done in place in the same amount of memory and you're not making copies all over the place, that is also going to be to your benefit. Basically, every copy is an ON operation that you need to be aware of. So, that yeah, that goes back to that example of pixel sorting. That was the other thing was I was then sorting that array of, you know, a 12 million elements, essentially, if it was like a 12 megapixel uh, image. So uh, what you're saying is if you use dot sort, or sorry, let's see. Yeah, sort is the one that mm -hmm. sorts in place. Over sorted, then that is a better outcome. Yes, especially if you already have a mutable array that you have, that is mm -hmm. going to be much faster than sorted because sorted needs to go and make you a new copy um, of that array just to give you a different something different than what you started with um, and the bigger that image if it's a 100 by 100 that might go fast that's only 10,000 am I doing that right yeah 10 1,000 10,000 10,000 elements mm -hmm. um, just add the zeros um, yeah, right <laughs> but if it's a 200 by 200 all of a sudden that's much larger than 10,000 it's not 20,000 it's uh 40,000 um right. So it, it gets much larger and larger the bigger your image is, even though you think, oh, I'm just increasing it linearly, it's increasing exponentially because you're, you have two dimensions to it. If you have three dimensions right. to it, a loop and a loop and a loop, that can get even hairier. Um, so it, it's something that you need to be conscious of whenever you're writing code, especially whenever you're writing an algorithm. Um, and it might come up in the most like surprising ways. You just want it to save your data to a JSON file to save it to disk. Every time the user adds an entry to your app, guess what? It needs to rewrite that entire file. If you have right. 100 things, that's one thing. If you have 101, it's going to take ever so slightly longer than it took for the 100. Um, as the user adds more and more stuff, it's going to get slower and slower and slower to save stuff. Um, but one thing that you should definitely keep in mind is if you know your data set is never going to be growing in size, it's going to be relatively constant in size, then it's not a then it's not a problem. You really don't need to worry about those situations. It can be O n to the power of seven if there's only five 
if n equals five. Uh, it's not mm -hmm. an inconceivable number uh, at that point. You can you are sure that it's always going to happen in the same amount of time. So always think about what the, the problem space is and if things are going to get larger or smaller over time. Yeah, and I think with that, one of the questions you should ask yourself is, is this going to be something that can be uh, increased? The amount of things can be increased by the user, like tweets, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you'd probably only have maybe, you know, I've, I've seen threads of maybe like 50 or so tweets at once, and I'm not sure they all... they wrote them all out at once like you can uh, kind of queue them up. But, you know, in theory, there could be that one lunatic that does write a thousand tweets at once just with one letter each or something. But if it's having to perform that that um, URL session request every time, then you could get yourself into a, a situation where you it could have an issue with its, its time complexity. So user-facing stuff, definitely be careful with. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, that goes I've for... Oh, go for it. Uh, and that goes for things that you're showing on screen, too. If if you're showing mm -hmm. one thing on screen at a time, that's going to be fine. If you show 10 things, it's probably going to be fine as well. 100 things, all of a sudden, this, the system is not prepared for that. Um, and it, it starts to struggle, especially in older devices. Uh, so always think about how much you're putting on screen, especially from a user interface point of view, because th these complexities, they carry over throughout the entire system. I would say the best way to kind of gauge like if you're doing this right or wrong, because there's lots of different scenarios where we just told you, watch out for this, except in this scenario, don't worry about it. Um, right. So when do you know if you're doing it right or wrong? So uh, I think th I think the best thing to do is to measure it, honestly. So instruments is a great tool um, and that can help you profile and see, are there any slowdowns in your app? Go ahead and test it with 10 more items. Right, you're talking about like with like the time profiler. Mm -hmm. um, instruments are really cool if you've never used them. I, there's a bunch of the instruments that I haven't used, but the two that I've used the, the most uh, probably have to do the most with what we're talking about here, which is the time profiler. And uh, I think it's just called the memory profile mm -hmm. profiler or allocations. Like, no, that's different. Um, but the time profiler is really cool because it will let you uh, record the usage of your app um, and let you even, you know, like, let's say you've got, um, you're, you're making those five tweets, right? You go through the simulator, you're, you're composing those tweets, you kind of queue it up, um, and you, you hit tweet all or whatever. The cool part about that is it's going to measure everything kind of during that whole time. But then when you're like, well, I really only care about looking at the time after I hit, you know, tweet. Uh, and kind of everything that was running from the time I hit tweet to the time it says the tweets are sent or whatever, you can kind of filter that down and look through this call stack and it will show you uh, essentially command by command how long it spent on whatever um, whatever was, was being executed. So if you've got, um, again, a, 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 maybe a loop in a loop and it's sitting there waiting for those uh, methods or those uh, completion closures to finish, it would say, yeah, that took, you know, 6.5 seconds or whatever. And so you can kind of see uh, in what place you are spending the most time, which can be super helpful. Yeah. And, and the best way to visualize that is via graph. It basically paints the graph 
very very blue <laughs> the more it's doing in that time so you know ah this is where i should pay attention right yes. at this chunk in time um and you don't even need to remember when you tap send you you know that's 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 causing that right there and you know uh that you can go ahead and take a look at exactly what methods are being called and likely you have a method that is implementing a loop calling other methods and you might think oh that's fine but then if you dive down into the methods that are being called by the loop those themselves have loops uh and that's when it gets um when it gets slower and slower especially as you add more data so while you're testing always make sure like add more data than you think the user will ever need if your app can survive that then it's fine for anything that the user might do um but if it can't survive that um then you really should rethink how to architect um what you're building because uh it will likely run into problems later on the more your users use uh that functionality um the second thing that you can do is benchmark so one thing i loved about nslog that is kind of gone with print uh is it would print out the time uh that like that log statement kind of came out at uh and that is super useful for quick and dirty benchmarks so if you want to know how long something takes you can print uh, not print you can nslog start you can nslog stop uh and then when you look at the console you'll see two times and you can kind of just do the back of the uh back of the napkin calculation to see how long that took if you are now working instead of on 10 items on 100 items you can go ahead and see was that 10 times slower was it 100 times slower uh was it two times slower um and that can give you a good idea of how things uh, are being handled uh, by a little small part of your code without you needing to test with 100,000 things. Um, you can just kind of graph out with a few data points how things are progressing. So uh, one last thing that I wanted to bring up, um, and that is uh, while you're doing all this, it's possible for your algorithms to kind of get very complicated uh, and very fine-tuned uh, as you're kind of eking out performance left and right, uh, maybe you're leaving old code in place as you're rewriting, uh, and the original intention of your code can very easily get lost. Um, so uh, one thing that I would highly recommend to everyone that is kind of jumping into code that you need to fix uh, in some way because of this uh, is to document um, a lot, especially as you try to make things clever uh, it's very important that you document that process so that way it's possible for a future you more than anyone else uh, to be able to discern and interpret uh, what exactly is going on because the computer will just follow those instructions uh, step by step. And if there's a bug in there, it's going to happily fall in that hole every single time. But you're not necessarily going to notice that if you are coming back to it months later um, and you don't really know what every line of code is really doing especially as you're adding or subtracting like small amounts uh to make sure that everything can be uh very optimized working in a window that's sliding across an array and things like that uh it gets very easy uh to kind of get lost in code like that um especially if like doing one line of code differently would uh create a copy and cause all sorts of things to kind of balloon from that point of view so if you're playing with like very nitty-gritty solutions to things Um, always document that code. Um, And the reason I bring that up is because it's possible to eke out even more performance out of what you're doing uh, by studying how the CPU is caching 
like various variables, where you define those variables are going to generate different instructions. Um, and being beholden to how your code gets changed into uh, instructions for the CPU uh, can inadvertently set you up for failure in the future as things get changed slightly differently, especially if your code is not readable. Um, so uh, as much as possible, try to keep your code readable. It will improve in speed in the future as compilers evolve. But if your code is not readable, uh, then it's just going to collect dust um, as as uh, time goes on. So uh, do be very careful about that. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing with making your code more legible than being, um, for example, concise or mm-hmm. uh, like performance aside, um, I, I think it's a huge benefit, like you said, mostly to yourself when you're coming back to this a few months later, uh, whatever it is, to be able to look at it and, and know what's going on. And sometimes you've got code that it may be complex enough for you to not understand it just by reading it. And that's where, like Dimitri said, that documentation uh, comes in handy. Uh, for me, I'll notice that it's harder for me to write documentation because I'm like, no, I've, I've got this. I, I understand this. But it's like, of course I do. I just wrote this code. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really thinking about myself in the future and how hard it could be for me to sort of relearn whatever I'm trying to uh, or whatever I'm, you know, currently working on a few months later. Uh, who knows where, you know, what I'll have done in the next few months. I, I could be working on a completely separate part of the app by then and haven't touched this. Like you said, it's just collecting dust for the last few months. Um, maybe you haven't touched it since then. Documentation is huge and it really doesn't take that long. And, you know, we could all get better at, like we we always say, documentation-driven development because it's it's a small amount of time that you spend in the present to save yourself a lot of time of having to, uh, at the very least, kind of read through that code and try to figure out what's going on. If not, go look at other tutorials and, and figure out, like, what was I even doing uh, mm-hmm. at that time? Yeah, it's important to explain why you made a certain decision, not what the code is doing. It's mm-hmm. clear to see what the code is doing. It's calling this method. Why is it calling that method? That's why where you want to explain yourself. Why are you choosing to do it in a certain order? Why are you choosing to use one method over a different method? All of those explanations, especially if you just went through uh, a an, an intense debugging session to really figure out what the optimal path was, by logging your thoughts and making sure that your intentions kind of carry through, that's going to do a lot more than seeing the change in Git where you saw the previous version, then you see everything changed and here's a new version. Uh, You're not really going to get that step-by-step process of why you went from the old version to the new version and what benefits each change made. Um, And from that point, it's kind of easy to just throw something out and rewrite something and be like, this seems better, uh, but really try to think about why why it's better um, and to log that down even if you, you're not sure, say, I think this is doing better because of this, this, and this. When you have more experience in six months and you look back at that, you're like, mm, I don't think that's the reason. Uh, you've actually introduced three bugs here. Um, you passed yourself. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and use these same intentions that are logged 
and rewrite those portions so that way they don't have those bugs. Um, so uh, that is something that takes skill to kind of develop and nurture um, and to know what to write for what kind of documentation. But generally speaking, uh, you will get better at doing that the more you document. Um, and especially starting off, you're probably not going to be writing super complex code. Um, but as you gain more and more experience, you're going to start dipping your toes into, oh, look how clever I am. I made uh, this 200-line uh, function down to 18 lines, uh, right. and it's super efficient. Uh, and all my variables are named A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Uh, and that's you might think, oh, this looks super neat. I made a drawing out of my code at the same time. Uh, that is useful from an academic point of view, but not useful right. from a maintenance point of view. So uh, enjoy the fact that your like Xcode, what we all use for iOS development, um, will autocomplete everything for you. So like in use long variable names don't yeah. don't try to shorten things up um and make sure that whatever algorithm you're concocting is really optimized to be legible first and performance second always uh even if you think that you can eke out extra performance you can make it more legible by adding words generally speaking um and that will help you in the long run yeah there's the the famous saying that premature optimization is the root of all evil, right? Mm -hmm. Don't try to write absolute perfect code the first time because you probably won't. Uh, and like Dimitri said uh, earlier, we've got computers uh, in our pockets that are blazingly fast um, that most of the time you don't really have to worry about performance for a lot, a lot of cases, unless you are getting into uh, some gnarly time complexity, but you know, I think that's more of an edge case uh, than than we may make it out to, to to be right now. But write like writing cleaner, better, more simple code is, I think, in many many ways preferable. Um, I would always um, tell my students to not write like those one-liners where you're doing like dot filter, dot sorted, dot whatever, reduce all in one line. Just write it out. There's nothing wrong with it being 10, 15 lines of code if you can read it faster and you can understand and grasp what's going on a lot more quickly. And then if you do have performance issues, again, like we said, run the time profiler or whatever you need to benchmark it and see where you can fix it. But don't you're going to spend so much time um, trying to write perfect code that you'll never write any code at all. Uh, so just mm -hmm. get something down and then come back to it if you need to. Yeah, and it's it's funny that you bring up that specific uh, example where you say dot .filter, dot .sort, dot .this, dot .that. Um, those will actually make copies at every single instance in time. So the more of those you add, the more complex you're making uh, <laughs> the code. It, it doesn't really stack very well. Um, and there are variations on those that do it lazily, which lets you set up a chain of commands, basically. But they're only going to be run at the very last moment, and that's going to save you on memory complexity um, uh, specifically. So even with that specific example, yes, your code might look better, but unless you know how to use those well, basically use lazy and only judiciously, uh, then you're going to make bad code. Uh, in that moment. That said, might not be a problem. Uh, right. Everything might be fine 
uh, by having that code, it might be more legible to spell those things out rather than write your own for loop uh, that does everything yourself uh, and is super complicated. Um, so it's important to test. It's important to document. Um, and I would say like one final like gotcha that you should pay attention to is sometimes it's not easy to rewrite the code in a certain way. Kind of the famous examples of this are recursive uh, functions versus iterative loops, for instance. So it's very easy to recursively think about a problem. It's like, okay, I'll do this. Uh, and then with the subset of information, I can call that again. And then that can call itself again and so on and so forth. Uh, and that might be fine um, for some scenarios. Like time complexity wise, that might be a perfectly linear algorithm if those are your constraints that you need. Um, but what you're slowly going to be doing is eating into memory every single iteration. So if you need to do that 100 times, that might be fine. If you need to do it 10,000 times, even if it completes within uh, just a few seconds to get what you need done and you show a loading bar or whatever you need to do, uh, that might actually run out of memory just from you calling methods or closures one after another. Uh, and that's right. because every time you call a method, it saves a little piece of memory to save where you are in that method on something called the stack. And before that, if that method finishes, it cleans itself up. But if it calls another method before it finishes, it adds that stack and adds that stack. Um, and you slowly eat up more and more memory. Um, now, most of these algorithms, it's possible to rewrite them uh, iteratively, and that is to say as a loop. Um, but all of a sudden, the code is no longer comprehensible. Um, mm -hmm. So it's very tempting to kind of get lost in the weeds trying to do that. It's a fun exercise for some. It's like a puzzle. It's like you have this problem it expressed this way. Can you express it any other way? Um, but it is something to be careful of, especially for something that happens uh, a variable amount of times. If you know it's only going to happen five times, uh, and if you add another 100 things, it might only happen six times, then it's not an issue. Uh, but if for every new thing that you add, you add one new entry to that stack because you've been calling that method one extra time, uh, that, can, uh, that can lead to problems. Uh, so although, like, what each version of the algorithm is trying to do is the same. In the end, they're all fruit. Uh, you need to go ahead and be very careful about how, uh, how you build out your algorithm. And if you're calling a method over and over and over again, that is something to be careful of. I think kind of to really sum everything up from, from my perspective is Again, from my, from my perspective here, Dimitri may have a very, very different perspective on this, but on my day-to-day, -day, I don't generally worry about time and space complexity because I'm not doing anything that merits uh, needing to loop in a loop in a loop, and, mm -hmm. and so I just don't worry about it. It's in the back of my head and thinking, ooh, you know, if I do start running into a loop in a loop in a loop, or I do see memory usage spike then I can say, all right, let's go ahead and profile this or let's, you know, think of a better way to do this. But um, I wouldn't necessarily concern yourself and freak out with every single line of code you're, you're writing. Think about mm -hmm. what is the time and space complexity of this because it's probably not going to matter in 99% of the cases. So don't let us, you know, having an entire episode on time and space complexity think make you think, oh, crap, this is something I absolutely need to 
um, to be watching out for every single moment that I'm coding, just have it in the back of your mind and know that it exists and know how it works so that you can uh, solve any problems that do potentially come up and you can recognize them uh, if, if you do end up introducing them or someone else does. And in the show notes for this episode, we'll add a few links that you can go ahead and read up more um, on these topics if you do want to brush up on them. Uh, but as Spencer said, for the most part, you're probably you're not doing science work. You're just writing an app. Uh, and that's a completely separate set of skills for the most part than inventing new algorithms. Uh, and unless you enjoy like coming up with new uh, and interesting algorithms, you don't necessarily need to worry too much um, about much or all of this, um, if at all. Uh, so do take it out of your own pace. Um, do keep in mind that some things can be made faster if you wanted to really hunger down and, and speed it up, but always measure first so that you can find out if it's worth it. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. it always has to be worth it because you're running under battery constraints and things like that. Um, but for the most part, it doesn't necessarily always need to be, uh, especially for apps. This week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by NotFa. Tired of eating the same old meals time and time again? Consider Vietnamese food. You might already know pho, but there are a ton of other flavors specific to Vietnamese cuisine that are sadly not well known around the world. This includes everything from sandwiches like banh mi, rice, rice plates like gom tam, and even the deliciously savory crepes known as banh sil. That's where this app, Not Pho, comes in. It's a free-to-try app dedicated to teaching you more about the wonders behind Vietnamese cuisine, brought to life with colorful and interactive illustrations and animations. Learn how to make many classic Vietnamese flavors at home, but even if you don't cook, you'll know how to order like a pro the next time you visit your local Vietnamese restaurant. New since version 1.1 is The Chef Club, regularly bringing you even more recipes like avocado and mango smoothies, fried rice, chicken curry, and my personal favorite, chicken beef, for the low cost of $2 a month with more recipes added regularly. Thanks again to Not Pho for sponsoring our show. Search for Not Pho, that's N-O-T space P-H-O, on the app store today to give it a try, completely for free. Now that we've gone through our topics, it's time for Complete the Code, where we quiz our listeners on your knowledge of Swift, Apple, and all things development. Uh, Here's last week's prompt once again. Spencer? Yep. Uh, So it is a key command related question. Um, If you're listening to the podcast, check the podcast art or the show notes uh, in order to follow along. Uh, So the the prompt here is we have some code that sets up a label, but uh, in doing that, we misspelled our label. Which key command in Xcode uh, will allow you to rename the variable uh, that you've selected everywhere that it appears uh, in the current scope? So super useful key command. Can you complete the code? Uh, tweet your answer to us with hashtag complete the code, all one word. The first to get it right will get a shout out on our next week's show. So as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Code Completion to know when new episodes get released. And feel free to tweet at us if there is a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer, who is at Spencer C. Curtis, that's S-P-E-N-C-E-R-C-C-U-R-T-I-S, on Twitter for joining me this week. 
My name, once again, is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buñol. That's D-I-M-I-T-R-I-B-O-U-N-I-O-L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I think this bit me once, uh, like, dealing with the time complexity stuff. Um, when I was trying to find out if I should show annotations for a certain time range within video, like while you're playing back that video and the playhead is moving, to find mm-hmm. out if you're within a time range. Because there's no oh. like preset data structure that's like, oh, here are your time ranges and you can just look them up in a dictionary or anything. So I needed to have um, a very interesting algorithm that I came up with that keeps track of like where the user is so that way it can quickly index to that specific time ranges that can overlap and all that. Uh, and that was a pain. So I, yeah. I, my, my heart goes out to everyone who needs to uh, implement <laughs> subtitles because subtitles are time ranges essentially. Uh, right. And that feels like it's complicated because it's not linear. The amount of data that you have, you can't just jump to index uh, 5,000, frame 5,000 and know what subtitle to put, you know? Yeah. CM times are weird. I don't know if that's what you were using, but we use a lot of CM time mm-hmm. and it's just like, what is this? It's yeah. Well, it's, it's made to be absolute, right? No, I know. I, I get it. But it's just like, this is like when my boss kind of, when I started working there, he's like, you might want to look into CM time and how it works and everything. If you're not familiar and stuff, I was like, okay. And I was like, it's just, you know, it, I don't think it'll be that bad. And I looked into it. I was like, this is way weird. Like, it's not <laughs> terrible, but it, there's like four things that have to do with the, the way that the time works and everything. It's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is not straightforward, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, at, it's at all because time. decimals are, are not accurate, right? You can't have a third of, of something like directly represented, but with the same time, you can right. have that perfectly represented. Um, yeah. And that's because t- uh, it's basically because audio and video does not match. Um, and that's a wonderful quirk of uh, everything. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yay to frame rates like, uh, 23.98, I think it is, um, which is actually 24 divided by a thousand and one, um, or 2400 divided by a thousand and one. Um, and that's because audio is at a certain frequency and video is at a different frequency. And that is the common divisor. Yeah. So yay for CM times.